This is another episode of the World Specials interviews that I did for the Men of Magic podcast. This time with brand manager for Wizards of the Coast, Mark Purvis. It was interesting, his story about how he got into magic, how Duels of the Planeswalkers have brought new and old players back to the game, and how to keep magic to continue to grow. He also had some very funny moments within the interview. And again, thanks for listening. What got you into Magic the Gathering? Uh, well, it was when I was moving into my dorm from my sophomore year of college. And one of my friends from freshman year, first time I'd seen him since, you know, the end of the year, the previous year, showed me this card game that he had started playing over the summer called Magic. And I clearly remember Curdape being the first creature he ever cast against me. He beat me down with this silly little monkey deck, and I didn't have a great experience, but it was good enough that I wanted to play some more. And of course, over time, he built a deck for me. It was a, a blue-red deck full of counter spells and burn, and I loved that deck. And uh, I was hooked. So from there, um, I played all through college and amassed a pretty decent collection of cards. And when I graduated, I said, I'm an adult now. I don't have time for this silly game called Magic. And I sold my entire collection. And uh, I had interned for a record company. And I got a job working for Sony Music in San Diego. And I was there for a little while. Then I moved to Los Angeles. And when I was in L.A., um, my roommate worked for a PR company that represented Microprose, and at the time they had the Magic game. And she wanted me to teach her how to play Magic so that she could do her job. And I was like, oh sure, I'll, I'll buy some packs, and Tempest was current at the time. And um, I taught her how to play, and I remembered how awesome the game was and how much fun I had playing it. And at that point I realized, I'm an adult now. I can do whatever I want, including playing Magic as much as I want to. So um, got into it pretty hard. Um, started going to pre-release events. Um, at the time, I would drive down to Long Beach to go to the Costa Mesa Women's Center, which is where the Southern California pre-release events were being held. And at the time, they were being run by Mr. Scott Larrabee, who is now our manager of organized play. Um, so a little small world moment there. Um, but I, I loved it, and I would go to pre-releases, and I would meet people that um, had the same sort of casual attitude that I did about magic, and we would form play groups and get together and play on a pretty regular basis. Um, I was in L.A. for about five years, and then I was moved to Chicago, and I didn't know anybody in Chicago, but the first thing I did was go to a pre-release, and at that pre-release I met some people that are have become lifelong friends, and... Um, played at pastimes with uh, Alan Hockman's events and just would go to every single pre-release uh, again formed a great little play group that, that met on a regular basis and uh, was playing magic on like every single week and I, I'm also I consider myself a, a big time collector um, I love putting sets together I love foreign cards I love tracking down weird little variations on cards and uh, cards that have mistakes on them which we luckily don't do nearly as often anymore um, and uh, really I think one of the great things about magic and I think you've heard this from other people before is that there's just so many ways to enjoy it there's the competitive level playing you know with the goal of getting to the pro tour there's um, 
some really wonderful people that I've met that really don't know how to play, but have some of the most amazing collections of cards that I've ever seen in my life. Um, there's a website called magiclibraries.com that just catalogs very strange and unusual variations of cards. And um, the French man that runs that uh, used to be a photographer for uh, Parisian models and has an amazing career doing that and never really learned how to play magic but fell so in love with the artwork that he has just amassed a really incredible collection of, of cards. And um, I would, you know, put myself somewhere in the middle there where I love playing competitively um, with my friends. Um, and at the same time, I, I really love collecting the, all the different cards that are out there. So um, around the time I was getting married, I decided that I was about to start a family, so I needed to really get serious about collecting. So um, right before my, my son was born, around 2004, I finished collecting one of every English card ever printed and uh, have been able to maintain that collection to this day. Is that something that one day down the line, with with your son, that you'll say, look, this is every card? I don't know. I mean, it's it's very likely it's something that I'll, I'll pass on to my kids. Um, my son is turning seven next week, and for Christmas last year, I gave him a, a very vanilla deck and made myself a deck that was... Like, his deck is full of, uh, say, two threes, and my deck is full of one twos. And so, you know, he wins most of the games. But uh, he's he's clearly going to be a gamer when he grows up, and it's nice to know that I have that bit of history to, to pass on to him. In many ways, I, I talked about that in Mark's interview. Magic works on so many unique social skills, mental skills. Your son is seven, and this is about the age where they start getting real curious about things like that. How much do you think what you do can help him get those other skills, life skills, and you have a hand in it? Sure. Uh, well, I think there's a lot of benefit to playing Magic. I mean, it's definitely sharpening his math skills and his vocabulary, and it's it's forcing him to read big words that he doesn't know yet. Um, and fortunately, he's in a, a family of gamers, and, and we play Uno, and we play board games, and um, if that's something that he's interested in, we'll definitely have some support for him there. How did you get into Wizard? Uh, so I was in Chicago working for Sony Music, and uh, I don't know if you're aware, but about five years ago, people sort of stopped buying CDs. Yeah, that, that downloading thing. That whole thing. downloading thing. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of friends that were at Wizards. I actually went to high school with Doug Beyer and taught him how to play Magic. And uh, the same guy who taught me to play in college, we came home for Christmas one Christmas break, and I brought him with me. And uh, Doug and I had played Dungeons & Dragons growing up, and uh, so we taught Doug and some other friends how to play Magic. Um, so when this marketing position came open at Wizards, I was able to ask Doug to go literally take my resume and hand it to the person who would be making the decisions about hiring it. And, and I think that certainly helped, but uh, I took a huge pay cut to go work at Wizards, and I 
I think it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life because it doesn't matter how much you're getting paid if you love what you're doing. It's as though you're not actually doing any work. So um, it's I've been fortunate that I've been able to, to sort of advance within the company over the last four years. Um, but, you know, moving my family across the country wasn't easy, but uh, it's been an extremely rewarding job. For you, to be able to market the game, you've expanded into many different outlets from online game systems, specific types of games that you can play from Commander to other... You're exploring all sorts of windows. How hard is it to juggle all those windows and make them all sellable? sellable. That's a a really good question. Um, Over the last three years, Magic has grown substantially. And uh, fortunately, the brand team has sort of grown along with it. And the position I have uh, is one where I spend a lot of time working with R&D and working with the other departments to come up with product ideas and and play experiences too. Um, one of the, the things that I'm most proud of that our company was willing to do was the Mirrored and Besieged pre-release where we actually created a product so that when you went to the pre-release worldwide you chose a side. And that was not an easy thing to pull off. There were a lot of variables that we had to juggle, but uh, I think it was a better experience for everybody who came to that pre-release and and made people feel a little bit more invested in the story of Scars of Mirrodin at that time. And so that's the kind of thing that's that's been really cool to be a part of. The the demographic of magic seems to be changed. It's all young 18 to 20 year olds are downward. There's an actual large segment of 20 to I'll even say 40 year olds that really enjoy this game at a different different place. You're trying to cater to all of these. The future of Magic obviously is it's already five years in advance. Your job to evolve like this how difficult is it to meet those challenges of an ever-expanding demographic? Hmm. Well, I think when you come up with a great product or a great play experience, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you love magic, if you love that experience, it's going to be effective for that person. Um, What we've been trying to do with the product side is instead of just putting out booster packs and fat packs and theme decks or intro packs, really look at the way different people interact with the game. And so we've got a product like Dual Decks out there for you know, maybe people who have a family, but they like to play Magic with their wife or their buddy, don't have time to crack packs and build the latest standard deck, can still have that, that great play experience with Dual Decks. Or, um, or Commander. I mean, that was something that was already going on there out in the community, and we were able to work with the, uh, the EDH guys and actually bring them on board with figuring out um, what kind of product we could make to support that format. It was already being played out there by, by Magic players, and so um, I would say 
we're less focused on specific demographics and more focused on the way that people play magic and interact with magic and, and supporting the way that people do that. Yeah, I'll actually jump forward with you. We'll say it is five years from now. This game, that it's going to evolve, whatever direction it goes. How do you plan five years ahead for what needs to be there for that segment? So while R&D thinks in five-year blocks, like Mark mm -hmm. has the luxury of being able to think about what worlds we're going to be in in 2016. Um, brand and product development really doesn't work on schedules that far in advance. We have ideas of the direction that we want to take Magic, and we know that one of the key things about Magic is that it's always growing, it's always evolving. But um, as far as specific products go, we don't have the same kind of five-year plan that Mark has in R&D. So um, we're looking at what people want from us, what products are successful, what which ones may not be working so well. Um, I think we learned a lot from the all-foil boosters, and what we learned is that, you know, premium foil cards are not necessarily as in demand to the, the general audience as we thought they might be, um, but at the same time, uh, it's been great to be a part of developing the From the Vault skew. That was sort of my baby when I came to Wizards, because... I basically got some of the most talented people in a room at Wizards, and we tried to design um, a collectible product because for a while I felt like that had been something that had been missing from Magic. Um, so um, that was a real treat to be a part of that. How many ideas end up never getting out to the public. So there's a there's a theory for every 100 ideas, 99 of them are bad, <laughs> and one is good. How many ideas get dropped at the cutting room floor for you guys? So for specific products, it's it's a lot less than that. Um, I, I have been on some design teams, and it is like you design literally hundreds of cards, and you'll be lucky if seven of them make it into a set. And um, so there's a lot more work that's put into things, things like designing a, a specific card set. But um, in general, we, we start from a position where we look at um, a need in the community, um, like Commander. We saw that there was a need to create a product to support this super popular format out there. Um, and then we work with R&D. We have a we have a called the Product Strike Force. And there's representatives from every department of the company. And we meet once a week. And in that meeting, we talk about products that are in development or needs that we have. And we have a process that we go through where um, we come up with a product idea. And then we have our product engineers explore it, see whether or not it's feasible to make it. We consult with the international offices to see if they want to have it localized. Um, since we're a global brand, that's always something that we have to think about. And I would say in the last three years, we have probably decided not to do five projects that have gotten to that point where we explore them. When you have those meetings with every representatives from every department, are those like all-day meetings because of everybody nope. going back and forth with ideas? No, no, we meet, uh, we meet 
for an hour every week, and everybody in that room uh, has a lot of respect for everybody else, and I think that's why it's been so successful in uh, coming up with all these great products over the last couple of years. Um, we have representatives from sales that will give us advice on what will or won't work in stores, and we have representatives from our product engineering team who will tell us if our ideas are crazy and going to cost us way too much to actually make. Um, but it's it's a pretty efficient system, and a lot of the creativity comes out of uh, R&D and our, our creative services department. We've got some really amazing graphic designers and product engineers that I feel like are sort of the unsung heroes of making magic products, but... Um, when we did the going back to the mirror and besiege faction packs, we told our uh, graphic designers and our product engineers, you know, this this box of booster packs is not really ever going to sit on a store shelf, so you can just make it very plain and don't spend a lot of time on it. And I don't know if you're familiar with the packaging, but oh, it, yeah. it still ended up looking better than a lot of other finished products that go out on shelves, and that just I think speaks to their pride in their work and the level of quality that they always strive to deliver. It's very hard as anybody who does anything to say, well, <coughs> you can do it this way, but it's not up to what you're used to doing. Like you said, you talked about the pride factor and the, the desire of wanting to have everything be great. You're, you work in research and development sometimes. You work with them and get your hands in there with them. How much does that benefit you when you come back to your team and say, we're working on 2013 and we're seeing this, this, and this, I need ideas on how we should promote this. It helps a ton. I mean, there is already great communication between R&D and the brand teams. So we take a lot of our cues off of what they tell us are the key beats to a set, but it it's really helpful to be able to come up with product taglines or come up with the, the key art that we use on packaging or you know the, the images that we put on posters to know what are the exciting cards in the set and not necessarily associated with the brand but what's going on down below many of the people that are involved with this represent magic a lot of the players they, their, their faces draw people into magic. The Community Cup, for example, when Luis Scott Vargas was a part of it. As soon as that happened, everybody was a buzz about it. They were excited to see who came in a part of this. How much can you take from these faces that represent the product and try to use them to help promote the product even more. I think a lot of those guys are doing a pretty good job of it on their own. And, you know, everybody who works on Magic, almost everybody who works on Magic in the building from R&D up to, you know, my wife works in the finance department. She's a huge Magic fan. Uh, we're all reading forums and we're all reading articles that the pros are writing on all the various websites. And, you know, whether these these guys know it or not, they're not only influencing our decisions, but they're, like you said, they're bringing in a whole new level of player who 
um, through their work are seeing the kind of intricacies you can put into developing yourself to become a pro player. If, if I have never played this game before and I walk into a game store and I see this on the wall, Magic the Gathering, what am I supposed to see that says, I want to buy this to try it? What are you trying to do, the person who's never played the game before, interested in playing the game? I think that's really tough to do just off of a poster, but hopefully in that store you would see people playing the game and having fun playing the game. Um, we've got a lot of great retailers out there, a lot of great stores that are part of the Wizards Play Network, and we've been working with them to talk to them about how you deal with a new player. Um, there's you know, Friday Night Magic in stores all across the world. And ideally, if you had never heard of Magic before, that store owner would be pointing you to come to that event, to get to know the community in that store. You know, hopefully they would actually teach you how to play Magic, maybe using a sample deck or an intro pack. Um, but as far as getting into the game, one of the great things to happen to Magic in the last couple of years has been Duels of the Planeswalkers, because not only has it exposed Magic to a whole new generation of people who are learning about it through their Xbox and through Steam and PlayStation, um, but it's also you know, sort of brought back a lot of people who played in college and were like me, who were like, ah, I'm out of college, I'm done with this Magic thing. And it turns out you can play it for the rest of your life. It's a great game, and it's got a lot of depth. And so we've seen a lot of people who are familiar with Magic get back into it because of duels, and then go into the store when they're looking for a bigger experience. Ideally, they're welcomed as part of that store community, and can get back into the game from there. Has Duels of the Planeswalkers been everything as a brand <clears throat> that you've envisioned it to be? I think it's exceeded all of all of our expectations. It's been it's been really great for us. Um, there are certainly things that we can do to you know make it a better experience and I think you're seeing a little bit of that evolution in the in the most recent release where you've got Arch Enemy so you can play more than just the regular format or Two-Headed Giant. Um, it's got new cards and I think that the way it looks is a little bit more in line with the, the core set that just came out and so if you're brand new to Magic hopefully that's a little bit of an easier path for you to go from um, you know playing through the game, having a great experience, and then either seeing the product in a hobby shop or even in a mass market retailer and making that connection. For you, when you see a tournament like this and the retail, the booths that are here selling the product and the players that are wearing, <coughs> wearing the shirts, promoting the material, are, are weekends like this something that make you realize that what you're doing is making an impact on a larger scale? It's certainly very cool to see uh, a big group of folks together all in one room playing magic like this. It's throughout my life been to a lot of large regional pre-releases and uh, I always felt like it's uh, it was a bigger community than just my dorm room, or you know, my dorm or 
whenever you were able to go to these events. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see all these different organizations. Some of them have very big followings online. Um, all these people traveling from all around the world just for this game that they love. We talked a little bit earlier about how the players promote the game. This is a global game. Is there anything left to expand into for this? You've accessed game systems, PCs, paper products, multiple levels of paper products. Where is, in your mind, potentially the next direction this can go to get to the next audience? I think there's always going to be ways for Magic to grow, um, whether it's through paper products or new digital offerings. I mean, just the, the platforms that are available to put a digital offering on are changing, uh, you know, from year to year. Um, but another thing that's really exciting to me is that we just launched Magic in Korean. It's been since 19... It's been since Urza's Saga, I think, was the last time we actually published in Korean. So now that we have Russian also, as of right now, Magic is being published in more languages than it's ever been before. We're in 11 languages. So, you know, I would like to see us grow into other markets. Um, Asia is a growing market right now, so um, we're seeing a lot of opportunity there. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I think there's always going to be uh, new opportunities in the, the digital space. But, go, but at, at, at the same time, I believe that playing in stores is always going to be at the heart of making Magic be... keeping Magic healthy. Um, because I think playing another human being face-to-face, -face, you know, getting a large group of, of people together who all have the same passion and having them challenge each other uh, you know, the, the ultimate battle of wits uh, is always going to be a key part of, of what makes, makes magic strong. Are you concerned at all about the fact that Magic Online is wildly successful? Uh, talking 800 PTQ qualifiers online to play. People are so into the online that they're stepping away almost from the store. Well, I think it's unusual for someone who's maybe new to Magic to just jump straight into Magic Online. I know it happens, um, but I'm not really I'm not really worried about that because, like we talked about, there's so many different ways to enjoy Magic. Um, there's going to be people that prefer to play it online, or maybe because of their lifestyle, that's the only way that they have an opportunity to play Magic. But at the same time that Magic Online has grown, Paper Magic has grown as well. And, I mean, like I just said, I think it's always going to be key to Magic's health that there be all of these great hobby, sh hobby stores and these great communities in those hobby stores because um, it's really the best place for a new player to experience the game. So um, I'm certainly not worried about it. I hope Magic Online continues to grow and, you know, along with Paper Magic. Is there anyone that you would like to personally thank that worked with you or have helped you along the way that, that when this goes out that they can get a little thank you? Because you said you work with a lot of talented people. Yeah. And these people we never hear from. Sure. These are people that are all behind the scenes. Yep. 
Uh, any of you like to talk about, or we can we can always not talk about it, but it's up to you. Well, I, it it might be that they would prefer to stay behind the scenes. Okay. But uh, I would just say that our our graphic designers and our our product engineers are just some of the best. I mean, of course, R and D is phenomenal for Magic right now and has been for years. Uh, but luckily, those guys get a lot of the kudos that they that they deserve. So you can deal with Mark Rosewater. Yeah, he's great. He's very yeah, okay. Yeah. So I'm Make sure, you know. <laughs> and Forsyth has been amazing for the for the for the brands. I mean, it was it was a hard decision to make the 2010 corset rules changes. Um, a lot of people were upset that we were making them, but at the same time, uh, I think he recognized that you can make the the rules cleaner and you can make the game more intuitive without reducing. The complexity. Magic is so complicated to begin with, and the cards just add to that complexity. But it makes it a much more fun game and a much easier game to play if Wooden Stake kills vampires, you know? Like if the cards sort of do what you would think that they would do. Yeah. There have been a few questions about when you put certain equipment on certain cards now it's like okay can an undead zombie you know carry this and use this equipment right. in battle it wouldn't make any yeah, sense well, sure. there's it's a little fun. bit of that uh, can spitting slug hold sort of uh, war and peace uh, yeah but you know for the most part the cards themselves I think are more top down than they have ever been before especially in Innistrad and um, just based on the reaction we've gotten from from the community it seems like people are a fan of that sort of design approach how much of it was it for you? Because they used to do split cards. How much of a... Because the player database, the player base is just used to having cards that say magic on the back. Right. How much of a challenge was it for you to give the approval to have dual-sided cards and to promote it? How much of a challenge was that? It was, uh, it was a big challenge, I'll be very honest with you. Um, it is. There was a, a. It was something that R and D put a lot of work into. Um, probably more work went into that than anyone on the outside would have ever imagined. Um, and there were some concerns about how the community would react to double-sided cards. There was also the issue of how do we, how do we put this out there in such a way that people don't feel like they have to play with sleeves. I mean, we don't want people to just have these cards in their deck and be able to know that that's the next thing that they draw, but at the same time, we don't want to force everybody to play with sleeves. Um, so a lot of thought was put into the checklist card and how often the checklist card appears, and then that impacted how many lands that we put into the set. There's only three different pieces of art in Innistrad land, whereas normally for a large set we would put four. But when we looked at how few lands would be out there, we decided we didn't want to make them so rare that if you wanted to complete a set that it would be frustrating. So we scaled that back. But going back to your question, I mean, it's not the kind of thing where R&D says, this is what we're going to do, you know, Wizards of the Coast, uh, this is how it's going to be. That's that's really not the kind of company that we that we work in. It's it's um, it's something that we all got really excited about. We saw the potential 
for the flavor of these cards. Did you, by chance, when they first said, this is a flip card, was there any moment of you as a gamer, did you pause and go, I don't know if this is going to work? I think... I think we all had, I don't know if we all did, but I, I certainly had a, a little shred of, I'm not sure if this is going to be too radical of an idea for people. Um, but, you know, R&D really felt strongly about it and felt like the benefit of it was going to outweigh any of the concerns and that we would be able to come up with ways like the checklist card to, you know, address any tournament concerns. And so... You know, all of this had to go to, to organized play. And Scott Larrabee worked with R&D to figure out, well, what does this mean for drafting rules? And then had to go to the product engineers and say, well, this isn't really how we normally print magic cards. Um, how do we actually pull this off so that they go into a booster pack where we get one double-sided card every time, double face card, all cards have two sides. <laughs> um, and as a company, we presented all of the pros and cons to our executive team and we've got a great CEO and Greg Leeds and you know he and all the other VPs listened to the recommendations and how we were going to deal with all the concerns that we saw that might might come up and you know the company made the decision to, to take the risk and that's one of the cool things about working at Wizards is that we're willing to do this kind of stuff to really push the boundaries of the game and, and keep it fresh and exciting for players. This has been another episode of the Minimagic World Special with Mark Purvis. If you'd like to comment about this or reach the show, you can email me at themenofmagic at gmail.com. If you'd like to contact me via Twitter, it's thebeamy, T-H-E-B-E-M-E, or themenofmagic. Thank you for listening. More World Specials interviews to continue.